You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. In the United States, the maternal mortality rate has dropped from 1 in 100 to 1 in 10,000 over the past century. Unfortunately, African mothers have not been as lucky. Today we'll be exploring aspects of the high maternal and neonatal mortality rates in Africa. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago. With me today is Dr. Lewis Wall, the world's only board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist who also holds a Ph.D. in anthropology. Dr. Wall received his medical degree from the University of Kansas. He also holds a doctorate in social anthropology from Oxford University. He is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Washington University School of Medicine. He serves as director of the Division of Urogynecology and Reconstructive Pelvic Surgery. He also is a professor of anthropology in the College of Arts and Sciences. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable here on ReachMD, Dr. Wall. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. First of all, I thought it would be interesting for our audience to learn a little bit about maternal mortality in Africa. Here in the United States, the maternal uh, mortality rate is roughly uh, 1 in 10,000. It's uh, rare enough, so it's very unusual and shocking when it occurs. But I understand it's not the case in Africa. Can you tell us a little about the maternal mortality rates? Maternal mortality is highest in Africa than in any other part of the world. And although Africa accounts for only about 20% of the world's births, it accounts for 40% of the world's maternal deaths. And the real problem is uh, lack of access to effectively functioning emergency obstetrical services. So that when problems arise, uh, help is simply not available. How do they vary country by country? Well, the maternal mortality ratios vary really according to the infrastructure of the countries because maternal mortality is so closely related to effectively functioning maternal health services. But if you look at the countries that have the 13 highest maternal mortality ratios in the world, 12 of the 13 are in Africa. The outlier is Afghanistan, which gives you an indication of the levels of poverty and social dysfunction that exist throughout the continent. It's even worse than in Bangladesh, for instance? Bangladesh uh, provides a a large number of maternal deaths, and, and it's certainly you know among the top 20 countries, but yeah, it falls below uh, countries like Sierra Leone, Mauritania, Mali, Chad, Democratic Republic of the Congo that, that simply have no functioning health services to speak of. What are the most common causes of death? Well, if you look at maternal mortality, uh, broadly speaking, there, there are really five major causes of, of maternal death. The largest one is hemorrhage, and that's mainly postpartum hemorrhage, uh, infection, sepsis, uh, hypertensive disorders, preeclampsia, eclampsia. Uh, obstructed labor is a big cause of maternal death when the baby won't fit through the birth canal and then cesarean section is not available and complications of, of unsafe abortion, which usually show up as hemorrhage or sepsis or combinations thereof. Can you give us some idea of the absolute maternal mortality rate in some of the, uh, the sub-Saharan countries? I'll give you an example uh, from Nigeria, because Nigeria is, is quite a depressing country for maternal health services. The maternal mortality ratio is about 1,000 maternal deaths for every 100,000 births. And what that means is that 1% of all pregnant women are going to die from a pregnancy-related complication. 
Now, that's bad, but you can say, well, it's only 1%. But the problem comes when you take maternal mortality of that kind with any individual pregnancy and run it over the course of a reproductive lifetime where access to contraception is poor and a woman may expect to have 7, 8, 10, 12 pregnancies. So her lifetime risk of maternal death in many of these countries is as high as 1 in 6 or 1 in 7. That is actually amazing to me. So it's not just 1% of women, it's 1% per pregnancy. Right. What about the neonatal mortality rates? Well, if maternal mortality is that high, the neonatal and infant mortality rates you know, are, are infinitely worse off than that. And if you look at it over the pediatric course of the lifetime, there, there are plenty of parts of Africa where the under-5 mortality is 30, 40, or 50 percent. And again, that, that feeds into the obstetric risk because if a woman in those countries, your social security net, your retirement and old age is going to be your family and your kinship system. So if a third or maybe a half of your children can be expected to die in childhood, you don't have much of incentive to use contraceptive services until you've got your family uh, in place. So there's another social factor that drives this as well. So when a mother loses a young child, she's under some economic pressure to replace the child through another pregnancy. Well, certainly if uh, she doesn't have any living children or if she only has one or two, large families tend to be the norm. And when you're going to lose a big percentage of your potential workforce from those kinds of issues, yeah, it's a, it's a big social problem on many different levels. With a high mortality rate, uh, certainly there has to be some uh, maternal mor- morbidity, very substantial rates as well. Can you tell us uh, something about maternal morbidity? I tend to think of maternal morbidity in this context as non-fatal obstetric injury, which can often be crippling. The study of maternal morbidity is not as precise as maternal mortality, but I think the most conservative estimates suggest that there are at least 40 serious morbidities for every maternal death. And we're talking about things like crippling obstetric palsies, vesicovaginal fistulas, There are roughly 529,000 maternal deaths worldwide each year, and 99% of those occur in Africa and South Asia. So if you multiply half a million by 40, you're talking about 20 million women with major life-changing disabilities as a result of obstetric problems at a minimum. I'd like to dwell a little bit more on the uh, fistula uh, formation in childbirth. Can you explain that to our audience? Well, a vesicovaginal fistula is an abnormal communication between the bladder and the vagina, a hole that leads to continuous urinary incontinence. And unlike the fistulas that might occur following a surgical procedure like a hysterectomy where the bladder is injured, the fistula from obstructed labor uh, is a different kind of entity uh, altogether. The post-hysterectomy fistulas occur really from a discrete injury to otherwise healthy tissues, but the fistula problem following obstructed labor uh, is different. What happens in that case is the baby's head gets caught in the pelvis. It comes to rest against the pelvic bones because there's not enough space for the birth to occur. The uterus continues to contract down. It creates an unrelenting pressure of the fetal head against the bones, which then traps the soft tissue between them. 
And this leads to a, uh, a large ischemic injury where the blood supply to a large area is cut off. And then after the delivery finally takes place, usually with the dead fetus, there's a slough of dead tissue and you're left with these awful injuries between the bladder and the vagina or the rectum and the vagina. How uh, big are these fistulas? How big can they run? You can see breathtaking fistulas that are 10 centimeters in diameter where the entire anterior vagina is gone. Because the tissues surrounding the area have been injured but have crawled back to life, those tissues are not dead but severely injured. And this means that the fistulas often occur in fields of very dramatic, heavy scarring that, that make them even more challenging. How often do the rectal vaginal fistulas occur? Well, it, it depends a little bit on the, on the part of the country. Vesicovaginal fistulas are far more common, and if you look at most large series of cases, a combined fistula probably exists in 8% to 13% of patients. Do the rectal vaginal fistulas ever occur in uh, isolation? They do, but it seems to be less common. If you look at fistula patients presenting for care, the vast majority of them are vesicovaginal fistulas. How long does it take uh, for an obstructed labor to really put a woman at risk? Do you have any data or information on that? Is it 12 hours, 18 hours, 24 hours? The obstructed labor that you see in Africa and Asia is different from what happens in the United States or Europe. I mean, any woman can get obstructed labor if the baby won't fit through the pelvis. But in the U.S. or Europe, you're going to pick that up, and it's not going to go on for more than an hour or two before the decision's made to do a cesarean section. Certainly, you can get a fistula in, in less than 24 hours. It's not a matter of the duration as much as it is the compromise of the blood supply. So if you have total occlusion of the blood supply, from a really forceful labor with a deep impaction, you could get a, a fistula fairly quickly. The problem when you see women in Africa is that many of them have been in labor four, five, or six days, and then they're in serious medical condition. I understand that there's some medical procedures performed by lay practitioners in Africa that actually perhaps put the patient at greater risk for fistula. What are those practices? There are two sets of practices, and they're basically female genital cutting procedures. And those may cause direct injury to the urinary tract. And in some cases, they can cause obstruction at the outlet from scarring that prevents labor from occurring. But most of the time, the, the obstruction occurs higher up. In northern Nigeria, there's a traditional folk belief in something called gishuri, which is the Hausa word meaning salt, and it's felt that a woman who in, takes in too much salt or sugar during pregnancy is going to form a, a web over the vagina that prevents the baby from being delivered. And if a woman has dystocia and difficult labor, uh, a traditional barber or a midwife comes in with a sharp instrument and makes a series of, of cuts in the vagina, usually in the midline anteriorly, that can slice the entire urethra open or the bladder and cause a direct fistula of that kind. What uh, hospital facilities are available for them to go to if they have an obstructed labor? There is a dearth of qualified obstetricians or qualified general practitioners who can do cesarean sections in, in most parts of Africa. The health services that do exist are usually badly distributed. They're concentrated in capital cities with rural areas 
uh, very poorly served. There was a, a study done in one part of a West African country called the Gambia by some researchers a number of years ago who looked at maternal mortality in one of the uplands, and they found this part of the country where if a woman had an obstructed labor or an obstetric emergency, the only place she could get help was in Banjul, the, the capital of the country that was 200 kilometers away and required a ferry crossing of the Gambia River. So it's almost impossible in some of the rural areas to get any care. Exactly. I want to thank Dr. Lewis Wall, a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Today we have discussed maternal and newborn morbidity and mortality in Africa. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions about this program, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.